This is a Net News Network headline news brought to you by the Behind the Line podcast, bringing you all the crazy, chaotic news from around the United States and the world. Tune in to what you won't hear the MSN talking about. It's unfortunate to me that we had to wait this long to start seeing this kind of news, but New York police officers have scored a big win in their fight against the city's COVID-19 vaccine mandate that cost some their jobs, with the New York Supreme Court judge ruling that the mandate, as it applies to members of the Police Benevolent Association, is invalid and that fired cops must be given back their jobs. Judge Lyle Frank said in the September 23rd ruling that PBA members who lost their jobs for refusing the jab must be reinstated to the status they were as of the date of the wrongful action. While it's unclear how many PBA members lost their jobs due to the mandate, a City Hall spokesperson told CBS News that more than 1,750 city employees have been fired for refusing to get the shot. Frank said in the ruling that a key reason why the mandate was illegal is because the city didn't collectively bargain with the PBA. No kidding. Conditions of work. That's what the union is for. Which represents some 24,000 members of the New York Police Department. While there were a multitude of cases where courts have ruled against challenges to vaccines being a condition of employment, in those instances the city and respective union collectively bargained to include the vaccination mandate as a new condition of employment, the judge said, adding that was not the case here. Every union should have contacted their members and decided before going ahead and bargaining with cities and counties on these matters. A lot of unions just bent over and took it without consulting their membership at all. The city authorities filed an immediate notice of appeal, effectively putting the judge's decision on ice. It is at odds with every other court decision upholding the mandate is a condition employment, a spokesperson for the New York City Law Department told CBS. The ruling was also praised by two New York City Fire Department union chiefs, Uniform Firefighters Association President Andrew Ansbro and Uniform Fire Officers Association President James McCarthy, who said in a statement on September 23rd that they would fight to win back firefighters' jobs for loss, refusing to get the vaccine. It was only a matter of time before a common-sense judge concluded the COVID-19 vac- vaccination mandate was never a condition of employment, the two union heads wrote. The union chiefs added that they will ask Acting Fire Commissioner Laura Cavanaugh to reinstate FDNY members who were fired or placed on unpaid leave for refusing the jab and for members to receive back pay. This should be happening all over the country in these liberal states where politicians and city officials forced this medical crap down our throats and our unions didn't back us up or it wasn't collectively bargained with a union which any condition of work has to be if there's a union involved. Israeli researchers found that there are some side effects that occurred after COVID-19 vaccination that were caused by Pfizer's vaccine, according to a leaked video. The Israeli Ministry of Health, MOH, commissioned researchers to analyze adverse events reported submitted by Israelis And the researchers presented findings from the new surveillance system in an internal June 2022 meeting, video of which was obtained by an Israeli journalist. Researchers said the phenomenon of rechallenge, which 
when is when adverse events recur or worsen following additional vaccine doses prove that some of the events were caused by the vaccine. A positive rechallenge was reported in 10% of the women who complained of menstrual issues, according to the researchers who also identified cases of rechallenge for other adverse events. Rechallenge changes a casual link from possible to definitive, Dr. Maddie Berkovich, head of research team and pediatric specialist, said at the meeting. Rechallenge helps us to establish the casual relationship, added Sasha Zarat, the main presenter at the meeting. The advantage of the surveillance system and the analysis is not only to identify the symptoms, but also to link them to the vaccine, she said. Footage of the meeting was leaked to Yafa Shiraz, a health journalist and risk communication researcher. Shiraz has publicly released clips from the meeting. About two months after the meeting, the MOH published a public report on the results of the data analysis. Language in the report on casualty differed from that used during the meeting. The report presents all the cases that were reported in close proximity to the receipt of the coronavirus vaccine and does not necessarily indicate a casual relationship between receiving the vaccine and the reported phenomenon, MOH said in the report. MOH spokespersons did not return or decline to answer questions on the discrepancy. Instead, a spokesperson sent a press release dated September 19, 2021, that announced the establishment of a dedicated information headquarters for the fight against the coronavirus. Dr. Robert Malone, who helped develop the messenger RNA technology on which Pfizer's vaccine is built, told the Epoch Times that ReChallenge is a standard pharmaceutical clinical trial practice that can provide definitive proof of casualty. The reports of ReChallenge in the Israeli study do not prove casualty, according to Malone. Only a formal ReChallenge trial would, he said. The analysis, though, strongly suggests and supports casualty, he said. Dr. Harvey Risch, a former emeritus of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health, told the Epoch Times via email that the researchers are essentially correct in their conclusions that the vaccines caused the adverse events. Researchers in other countries have said before that there are casual links between certain vaccines and certain side effects. The current evidence supports a casual association between mRNA COVID-19 vaccination and myocarditis and pericarditis. Dr. Tom Shima Burko, a health researcher with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, said during a meeting over the summer. Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine also utilizes mRNA technology. Myocarditis and pericarditis are two forms of heart inflammation that can lead to death. The CDC's Immunization Safety Office declined to comment on the Israeli findings. CDC continues to monitor the safety of COVID-19 vaccines and makes information available to the public in a timely and transparent manner, it told the Epoch Times. Pfizer and Moderna have not responded to requests for comment. Other findings that were not made public in the Israeli study, the Israeli's surveillance system was revamped in December 2021. The data presented in June was collected from December 2021 to May. The surveillance system received a total of 8,000 reports, of which 1,741 were removed for providing incomplete or duplicate information. Of the 6,259 reports presented, 599 were for children aged 5 to 11, 299 for adolescents aged 12 to 17, and 5,411 for adults 18 and older. 
More women than men completed the questionnaire. A total of 29 categories of adverse events were identified, 22 of them from the blank space option on the questionnaire. However, only data for the first five categories with the most reports were analyzed. Neurological, 395 reports. General side effects, 295. Menstrual disorder, 282. Musculoskeletal disorders, 279, and the digestive, kidney, and urinary system, 192. Many of the reported adverse events were found to be long-lasting, which researchers said in the meeting was surprising since the brochure handed to vaccine recipients says otherwise. They also said Pfizer officials told them that Pfizer did not know of any long-lasting symptoms. Researchers also said they identified new adverse events not listed in the brochure, including back pain. In the official report later issued to the public, the MOH did not detail how researchers were caught off guard by the duration of the events and side effects. The health agency also stated that there were no new events identified. Retsef Levi, Professor of Operations Management at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, said during one of the meetings that the MOH's surveillance system was truly dysfunctional and does not address appropriately major concerning safety signals. The choice to admit some of the crucial findings discussed in the meeting from the public report is a recipe to destroy the entire vaccine program, according to Levi, an Israeli native and an expert in risk management. The more pro-vaccine, the more disturbed you need to be from something like this, Levi told the Epoch Times. And the reason is that the two most important enablers for vaccine programs to be successful is trust and transparency, that you actually communicate to people the real risk benefits and allow them to make choices about what they want to do. Hmm. The second thing is that you take care of people that were harmed by the vaccine because no vaccine has 100% safety. I think we have in this example where we violate these two very important principles, he added. This is a recipe to basically destroy all vaccine programs. So the more pro-vaccine you are, you should be more disturbed by this. No kidding. What does this tell you? These government officials are lying to us. These vaccine companies are lying to us. And the question is why? None of this was done on the up and up the creation of the vaccine, the basis for the vaccine, the forcing it down our throats, the loss of your job and business over vaccines. This thing wasn't even created, studied, and tested like any other vaccine ever has been. No trials for 10 years, not enough research, why aren't these people responsible for this being held accountable? One of the nation's largest providers of abortion altered its webpage on pregnancy after the Democratic Georgia gubernatorial candidate claimed that a fetus doesn't have a heartbeat at six weeks. There is no such thing as a heartbeat at six weeks, Stacey Abram, the Democrat, said during a September 21st event in Atlanta while speaking against abortion restrictions. It's a manufactured sound designed to convince people that men have the right to take control of a woman's body. A number of people responded online by pointing to the website of Planned Parenthood, which advocates for and performs abortions across the country. 
What happens during week five to six? The Planned Parenthood webpage on early pregnancy stated a very basic beating heart circulatory system developed. The page was altered after Abrams made her remarks, according to archived versions of the page. It now states a part of the embryo starts to show cardiac activity. It sounds like a heartbeat on an ultrasound, but it's not a fully formed heart. It's the earliest stage of the heart developing. Are you kidding me? I mean, are you kidding me? A dumbass politician makes a statement like this and medical professionals change the definition of a fetus at week five to six? What world are we living in here? The U.S. National Library of Medicine states that week five of fetal development includes the heart starting to develop and in the next two weeks the baby's heart continues to grow and now beats at a regular rhythm. This can be seen by vaginal ultrasound, the library states. Senator Roger Marshalls, an obstetrics and gynecology doctor, said that Abrams' claim is wrong. Babies have a real heartbeat at six weeks. Why do radical Democrats hate unborn babies, he wrote on Twitter. Let me be clear, babies do have a heartbeat at six weeks, Abby Johnson, a former Planned Parenthood worker, said on Twitter. Stop looking for ways to attempt to deny their humanity. Stacey Abrams, do you suppose that she's a doctor or something since she's making claims like this? Nope, but you might be surprised to know that she is the daughter of United Methodist, Methodist ministers. Well, but she apparently didn't learn anything from those ministers, and Stacy is a Yale-trained tax attorney, entrepreneur, writer, and small business owner. She co-founded Now Account, a financial services firm that helps Georgia small businesses access capital, grow their operations, and create jobs. She's also the CEO of Sage Works Productions, a production company in Georgia with several pro projects under development, including with CBS Studios and NBC Universal. In her various leadership roles, Stacy has hired and employed Georgians in every region of the state, including hundreds of young people beginning their careers. This is from her website. What it really says, though, is that she's never had a real job. She's worked in nonprofits and government-related businesses and organizations her whole life until she became a politician. She has no medical training whatsoever. So for her to make claims like this is sick and disgusting. And I I don't I can't I don't even have the words for somebody to get up there and say stuff like this because there are plenty of idiots who will believe that just because you know she's popular and they'll just believe it. Quite frankly, it sounds like she went to school her whole life because she's got degrees from Spelman College, the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, and Yale Law School, like I said before. She's all about social services and abortion. Georgia, don't vote for that lady. And just in case you haven't had enough of pandemics and COVID and monkeypox and polio and all that good stuff. 
a recently discovered virus in a Russian bat. It's always Russia, isn't it? That is similar to SARS-CoV-2. The virus behind COVID-19 is likely capable of infecting humans and, if it were to spill over, is resistant to current vaccines. A team led by researchers in Washington State University's Paul Allen School for Global Health found spike proteins from the bat virus named COSTA-2 can infect human cells and is resistant to both the monoclonal antibodies and serum from individuals vaccinated for SARS-CoV-2. Both COSTA-2 and SARS-CoV-2 belong to the same subcategory of coronaviruses known as SARBI coronavirus. Our research further demonstrates that the SARBI coronavirus the Sarbacoviruses circulating in wildlife outside of Asia, even in places like Western Russia, where the Costa 2 virus was found, also pose a threat to global health and ongoing vaccine campaigns against SARS-CoV-2. Letko said the discovery of Costa 2 highlights the need to develop universal vaccines to protect against Sarbacoviruses in general, rather than just against known variants of SARS-CoV-2. We definitely need more vaccines, wouldn't you say? Just vaccines for everything. Here's an idea. Stay away from Russian bats and you'll be all right. Russian President Vladimir Putin granted full Russian citizenship to U.S. whistleblower Edward Snowden last Monday. Snowden, 39, fled the United States to Russia after revealing information about extensive surveillance operations being conducted by the NSA. He is now a Russian citizen by presidential decree, Reuters reported on Monday. The announcement comes roughly two years after Russia granted Snowden permanent residency in the country. The country first granted Snowden Snowden asylum in 2014 and has since resisted calls to extradite him to the U.S. Snowden faces espionage charges that could land him in prison for up to 30 years in the U.S. Strategic intelligence expert and author of Putin's playbook, Rebecca Koppler, says the move likely signals that Snowden is working more closely with the Russian government. She says he is likely now subject to Putin's mobilization order, but will be assisting Russian intelligence rather than serving on the front lines. While before, Snowden was willingly providing help to Russian intelligence. As of today, he will be directed to do exactly what the government, Russian government and military want him to do, Koppler told Fox News Digital. Snowden has been more than likely been debriefed by Russian spy agencies and has provided highly sensitive information to the Russians that could harm Americans, including U.S. military personnel, she added. Snowden stated in 2019 that he would be willing to return to the U.S. on the condition that he got a fair trial. Oh, yeah, okay. That is the ultimate goal, but if I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison, then my one bottom line demand that we all have to agree is that I at least get a fair trial, Snowden told CBS this morning at the time. Former President Trump had stated he was considering Snowden's case for potential pardon in 2020, but never took action. Senator Rand Paul has been one of Snowden's major allies in the U.S., saying the whistleblower unveiled schemes by the U.S. government to surveil American citizens both here and abroad. Well, if I were him, I would never come back to this country, and he should just stay there and live his life. H.R. 8256, introduced by the Democrats for fiscal year 2023, Commerce, Justice, Science, and Appropriations Bill, originally introduced in June of 2022, still waiting to be voted on. 
But hidden within this bill are 10 gun control provisions you may not be aware of. These 10 include a massive ATF budget increase to facilitate Biden's pistol ban, a uh, gun registration funding appropriation, a gun confiscation law funding, financial benefits for families of deceased ATF agents killed or injured on the job while enforcing gun control, ammunition background check study. Yes, they want you to complete a background check to buy ammunition. Gun control research unbound by the Dickey Amendment, anti-gun community violence interventions, domestic violence firearms, lethality reduction initiative, violent anti-government ideology research, and gun control earmarks. The ATF will be getting a massive budgetary increase as part of this bill. It also provides $14 million to modernize the National Tracing Center, which is the branch of the ATF that maintains accesses and searches ATF's digital searchable gun registries. The bill also proposes $40 million for gun confiscation orders. As I said, this has not passed yet, and now would be the time to reach out to your representatives and let them know not to support this bill or at least not support these provisions that are buried within the bill. New York State has jumped more squarely onto the zero emissions bandwagon by announcing it will follow California's lead in banning sales of gasoline-powered cars. The announcement was made by New York Governor Kathy Hochul at a press conference on September 29th in which she said that all new sales of cars, pickups, and SUVs in the state must either be fully electric or plug-in hybrids starting in 2035. Meeting the 2035 target will be staggered with a requirement for 35% of new cars, pickups, and SUVs having to be zero emission by 2026. That's just four years away, 35%, and 60% by 2030, Hochul said. New York is a national climate leader and an economic powerhouse, and we're using our strength to help us spur innovation and implement implementation of zero emission vehicles on a ground scale, Hochul said. Again, no plan in effect. We're just going to do it somehow by magic and unicorns and rainbows and ponies. While the plan outlined by Hochul follows, mostly follows California's zero emissions scheme, New York extends to public transportation, including school buses. All new school buses in New York will be required to be zero emission by 2027, and the entire fleet must be, meet the stringent standards by 2035. Where is all the money coming from to pay for this, is my question. Critics of California's aggressive zero-emission vehicle sales standards have warned that a lack of key electric vehicle infrastructure makes adoption, adoption California's new rules extremely challenging. Whether or not these requirements are realistic or achievable is directly linked to external factors like inflation, charging and fuel infrastructure, supply chains, labor, critical mineral availability and pricing, and ongoing and the ongoing semiconductor shortage, John Bazella, president and CEO of the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, said in a statement. He added that the organization he leads fully backs the aim to get more electric vehicles on the road, but there are policy issues that need to be addressed before that can succeed. Policymakers should be asking, are critical mineral and battery supply chains in place? No. 
Will the critical mineral mining and processing happen in the United States? Probably not. Can customers afford the vehicles? Nope. Do all communities have the same access to level two home charging as single family homeowners? Again, no. But like I've said time and time again, Democrats don't have any real plans. They just like to throw these ideas out because they sound good and no way to actually achieve these ridiculous plans. And here's a weird one for New York and China. China has opened dozens of overseas police service stations around the globe to monitor its citizens living abroad, including one location in New York City and three in Toronto. These operations eschew official bilateral police and judicial cooperation and violate the international rule of law and may violate the territorial integrity in third countries involved in setting up parallel policing mechanism using illegal methods, reads a report by Safeguard Defenders, a human rights watchdog released earlier this month. The report, titled 110 Overseas Chinese Transnational Policing Gone Wild, details China's extensive efforts to combat fraud by its citizens living overseas. I'm sure that's what they're up to in part by opening several police stations on five continents that have assisted Chinese authorities in carrying out policing operations on foreign soil. Europe is home to most of the police stations, with locations spread across the continent in places such as London, Amsterdam, Prague, Budapest, Athens, Paris, Madrid, and Frankfurt. North America is also home to four of the stations, with three locations in Toronto, and one in New York City. In all, there are 54 such stations in 30 different countries. The report details how China has attempted to combat the growing issue of fraud and telecommunication fraud by Chinese nationals living abroad, running operations that have resulted in 230,000 Chinese nationals being persuaded to return to China voluntarily over the last year to face criminal prosecution. The Chinese government has claimed that the stations provide vital services to its citizens living abroad, though the report notes that many of the services are those that would be traditionally carried out by an overseas embassy. Instead, the report argues that the stations have been used to enhance China's overseas law enforcement capabilities and possible violation of international law. The report also outlines potential human rights abuses associated with the stations, including using harassment and intimidation methods such as threatening the family members of the overseas citizens. The stations have also served as centers to spread Chinese government propaganda and monitor the behavior and opinions of Chinese nationals. As these operations continue to develop and new mechanisms are set up, it is evident that countries governed by the standards set by universal human rights and the rule of law urgently need to investigate these practices to identify the local actors at work, mitigate the risks, and effectively protect the growing number of those targeted, the report concludes. Uh, This is just weird, and even weirder that not only would New York's government allow this to happen on U.S. soil, but that the federal government would allow this to happen on U.S. soil. We have our own police and our own law enforcement to deal with fraud. Thank you very much. We don't need any Chinese police running around American cities policing their their citizens. It's wrong. 
I'd be curious to know if these jokers are uniformed and driving around in some sort of Chinese patrol car. I mean, what... I, it this this baffles me that this is allowed to go on that some foreign country especially China is allowed to operate like this with inside the US back in March US federal authorities arrested three people on suspicion of spying in Americans stalking and harassing Chinese nationals in the US on behalf of a Chinese secret police agency known as the Ministry of State Security this is the secret police station set up in New York Needless to say, this article goes on to talk about these secret police hiring a U.S. private investigator to harass Chinese people that were running for uh, congressional seats. They were going to attack a Chinese artist who had made a sculpture that depicted Jinping as a COVID virus. They were going to destroy the sculpture. Uh, it just goes on to talk about all this harassment. They also attempted to bribe an IRS in, in a, or IRS employee in an attempt to get their hands on the tax returns of Chinese pro-democracy activists in the U.S. Several of these people were arrested, but several remain at large. It Again, it just baffles me. How is this allowed to go on in the U.S.? Okay, they, of course, after these things happened, the government takes action. Why are they allowed to set up a building and have a presence, a known presence, in a city in the United States? It's insane to me that our government would allow... The, sub, the sovereign borders of our nation to be breached like this. These countries have embassies and that's what they can use to deal with situations in other countries. They don't get to set up a police station in a city in the United States of America. Why this isn't being dealt with immediately with drastic consequences, I, I have no idea. This just further shows how weak our country is under the present leadership. Thank you for listening to Net News Network Headline News, brought to you by the Behind the Line podcast. For more, you can listen to us at the Behind the Line podcast dot com or right here on Net News Network. We can also be found on Facebook. YouTube, Truth Social, Parlor, Gab, Twitter, Telegram, Reddit, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Anchor FM, and anywhere else your favorite podcasts are found. Thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe and share.